0: Thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves. I'm Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library. I'm being joined today by Dr. Sarah Wormiel, an independent scholar, historian of technology, and historic preservation consultant. And Sarah has researched and written widely on business history and historical buildings and their technologies. Sarah has conducted significant research in numerous Hagley collections, including for her recent project an introduction of the rolled I-beam in the United States of America in the 1850s, revisited. Uh, in support of which, Dr. Wormiel received a Henry Bellin DuPont research grant from the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Pleased to be here. Yeah, well, what, what is your project
1: about? So, um, the uh, rolled I-beam is, um, what's called a structural section. And it's a, uh, piece of metal, um, that, um, was initially rolled in, um, wrought iron and now is more, you know, better known in steel. Wrought iron is, uh, scarcely used any longer. And, uh, it's in the shape of a capital I and I can show you. Oh, sure. So, so, um, Uh, This was um, originally rolled to um, replace wood in buildings to make them Mm fire-resistive, and this is a a surprising fact that um, it is is kind of hard to get people to grasp because it seems like, well, rolled metal, metal structure, that's such a good idea, Um, you know, wrong, why wouldn't people do that? But the reason why they did do it initially was to build what were called fireproof buildings. So um, there is a literature, uh, you know, so this this um, section, this I section, was the first um, solid, as it's called, because it was rolled in one piece, a piece of structural metal that was made. It was um, sort of started the... Um, you know, the the route for um, s- structural metal frames, which eventually led to skyscrapers, which is one of the reasons why people are interested in the history of this structural metal. And um, so there is a literature on the beginnings of rolling of I-beams. Uh, it's, it's rather old. Um, some of the articles were written, you know, a few decades ago and uh, uh, just in the course of my research on the history of fireproof buildings I got into this and then um, I saw it was it was probably worthwhile to focus on um, this literature and updating it specifically so um, so that there's sort of more uh, up-to-date information that scholars can use if they're interested in that and so that's what
0: I, um, I did in my art. Where was this uh, I-beam first developed, this technology?
1: So the, the, uh, the solid, the, I should say that I, uh, metal structural beams um, were used before the, the um, rolled I-beam. So again, the the first rolled I-beams were in wrought iron. Prior to that, beams in an I-shape were made of cast iron and that was already in the early 19th century. So there was a a tradition of using metal beams, but um, so this was before rolling. And then also before solid beams could be rolled, um, what were called um, fabricated, girders. So these were girders that were made out of flat pieces of metal and angle iron, and they were um, put together with rivets. And in fact, on the Hagley property, the, the small iron bridge that crosses the Brandywine that's between um, roughly um, the Henry Clay Mill and the, um, the Library and Soda House area on the on the road along the Brandywine, there's a small metal bridge. And um, Everyone should should look at it because it has very nice example of plate girders. So these are fabricated girders. Uh, the bridge I think was from the 1870s. Uh, so you can see very clearly on this nicely preserved bridge, the, um, the, the plates at the top and bottom, and then the little angles and, and the rivets. So that was done um, before solid rolled I-beams and continue to be done to make Um, girders that were larger than could be rolled in solid pieces. But for fireproof floors where you did not need a particularly deep girder and the cost of making um, the fabricated ones was was high naturally because you had the extra labor and actually cast iron by the 1850s was um, well it was um, viewed rather um, skeptically increasingly because it was considered brittle and um, in fact, it is not strong intention. So people wanted wrought iron. So so two companies actually in the mid-Atlantic area, Trenton Ironworks and Phoenix Ironworks, both in the early 1850s started a project to try to roll solid beams these I-beams for, for buildings. And that's what I document in my paper. That's really the, the, the research question was, you know, it sort of boils down to who was first? <laughs> Trenton or Phoenix? So, so they both, um, I can see in the early fi- 1850s, they're both trying to do this. And it's a, um, a neck and neck race. And one of the, um, Difficulties in getting definite information is that um, um, Phoenix's records from this period, surviving business records, are not very complete. Well, they're very sparse. So there, there were just a few clues, and even um, secondary information is um, uh, doesn't really, you know, give a definite answer. But um, the Phoenix records at Hagley uh, were wonderful, and I went through everything I <laughs> could find. Again, not much surviving from this important period, sort of 1850 to 1856, except for one very critical letter, which um, you know, sort of, the whole case hinges on this this letter, pretty much. These two letters. Please
0: tell us about the letter.
1: Well, um, so Trenton Ironworks, um, obviously in Trenton, and uh, they, uh, this company was set up um, by Peter Cooper, his son, and his, what became his son-in-law, Abram Hewitt. But it was managed by um, Cooper's son, Edward and Abram Hewitt, and it began um, in Trent in about 1848. And um, they started their project to make beams in, in, in the early 1850s. Phoenix Ironworks um, has a, a longer history, but um, it was, it became owned, uh, it was bought by the Reeves family. And initially it was making nails and you know, things of the early 19th century Um, when um, rolling of railroad rails began in the late 1840s, the firm went big into rails and it was one of the first contractors to roll rails for the Pennsylvania Railroad, which began construction in 1847. So around that time, they're rolling rails. Meanwhile, Cooper and Hewitt are rolling rails. About 1850, there's a a huge um, depression in the iron manufacturing business. Um, England uh, is dumping rails on the US market and many mills go out of business. And so I think that um, Trenton and Phoenix in turning to Beams, they were looking for a product that would not have as much competition. And that was a new market, um, fireproof buildings. Cities are, you know, growing, Um, taller buildings are being built, obviously nothing particularly tall, circa 1850, you know, maybe five, six stories at the most. But anyway, tall wasn't so much the issue. Fire protection was the issue, no matter how tall you were. So these were, um, you know, city buildings, banks, insurance offices, government buildings in particular, really a lot of government buildings, that uh, the owners did not want to burn down, wanted to protect. So they 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 wanted structural metal to substitute for wood in the in the um, internal construction of the building. So um, both Phoenix and um, and Trenton were very well capitalized. They were very so to speak rich companies. They um, They developed their own um, rolling technology uh, to make these, these beams and um, uh, I hope you can edit this, but I think I I lost the track of what you asked.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's quite all right. Um, Well, you're, you're going to tell me uh, who came first okay first trenton oh, okay. Or, or phoenix uh, and oh. they're sort of oh, neck and letter. neck
1: yes the letter okay
0: and so, yes correct
1: the letter um so the the liter- if i could you know continue the literature uh, focuses on trenton because business records of trenton survive miraculously and that i think i'm not positive but it may be because of Peter Cooper's involvement, Abram Hewitt, you know, they were very prominent people. Now the Reeves family that owned um, Phoenix Ironworks later, you know, eventually Phoenix Steel Corporation, a very long lived company, but they were not as politically active. You know, they weren't nationally prominent. Um, I don't know if that's why their records don't survive, but um, for example, the, the, um, records for Trenton Ironworks are in both the Library of Congress and the New York Historical Society. Um, Anyway, so so, uh, researchers looking at the history of um, the I-beam had a very good source of information, Trenton, and moreover there are, you know, contemporary references that Trenton was the first. Um, Meanwhile, There are, you know, secondary references that say Phoenix was the first, but the evidence isn't as good because it it just, the records, as I say, from this period didn't survive. So, you know, so there was this, you know, both, you know, seemed to be in competition anyway. um, I particularly focused on Phoenix because that story wasn't told as well. So this letter, these two critical letters, um, are between Trenton Ironworks and Phoenix Ironworks, the principals of the company. And, and they are from the early 1857. And, and Cooper and Hewitt of Trenton write to the Reeves family and say, listen, this is a new product, this IB. You know, there's there's why would we compete against each other? You know, I hear that you have underbid us for these two projects. Um, One was the um, Philadelphia uh, Railroad Company headquarters. You know, why we should work out a deal, you know, divide up the market. We shouldn't be competing on price against each other in this very small market. And we don't have um, the Reeves' response, but actually Cooper and Hewitt, the tone of their letter was, was, very <laughs> annoyed, you know that that um, that they had to compete with with Phoenix for, you know, on price for this. So what happened was um, Phoenix did get the the Philadelphia Railroad Company headquarters building, and Trenton got some some work too. And Trenton, moreover, had an almost exclusive deal with the federal government to build federal buildings. So not only do we have the records for them, you know, those that survived the New York Historical Society and Library of Congress, but we have all the federal records which are excellent for all these buildings for which they supplied beams. So I can tell you dozens of buildings that Trenton supplied beams for, most of which were federal government buildings Again, it's, it's very hard to find the, the buildings that Phoenix worked on. At any rate, we know from these letters that the bids for uh, that Phoenix and Trenton bid against each other for these buildings in late 1856. So for sure, beams, both companies were rolling beams by then. In tracing Trenton, I can see that they finally because you can get a pretty good timeline. Finally, they had a nine inch eye beam, and that's this one, available by summer of 1856. I don't have that kind of confirmation for Phoenix, except that we know they did have beams by presumably late 1856. So, (laughs) Uh as one uh sort of contemporary writer wrote about this, um you know Trenton says you know they they had it you know the, the hour before Phoenix did <laughs> 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 or something to that effect so that's so so it's it was really about the same time the, the, however what what is important is that Phoenix actually had um a better technology at an earlier date. And it unfortunately lost out on these government contracts. So it didn't have the kind of steady customer that Trenton had at an early date. It was really bidding for building projects. Again, unfortunately, we don't know, I don't know um, all, all the projects. Uh, it was hard to find the ones that that I could. Um, And they were competing even in Philadelphia with Trenton. So I I noted in my paper, the Cornelius and Baker um, lamp factory, um, that uh, Trenton won that contract. That was a very large building with a lot of beams. Anyway, um, so it's not as if Phoenix had the market of Philadelphia even exclusively, but um, uh, Phoenix, started rolling 12 inch beams before um, Trenton did. It had a patent for a process, a rolling process um, that uh, was superior to what Trenton had. So um, it, um, you know, it was early making a wider range of sizes and and weights of beams
0: for the market than, than Trenton was. What were uh, the market conditions um, pressuring the adoption of fireproof building techniques? Was it just the desire to uh, have a safer investment in in your capital, or perhaps were there insurance requirements that um, meant you had to satisfy a certain level of fireproofing?
1: Uh, It was
0: all voluntary. Oh, wow.
1: The only, um, so the federal government, in early 1850s, adopted a policy to build everything but their you know, most you know, small and kind of remote buildings, like on the frontier, to build those fireproof. Mm-hmm. So the federal government was an early and, and large um, customer and that benefited Trenton. By um, the 1860s, fireproof buildings for um, private um, customers was growing but the buildings were um, much more expensive. And again, the the system had no benefit other than Mm non-combustibility. A a fireproof building and a, a regular building, you know, they looked the same. They, it's not that you could build taller or that you need, you know, they were in a sense overbuilt. The floors were typically made with iron beams and brick floors. And, um, you know, it was just more than was needed, except that an iron beam and a brick floor was fire resistant. So um, the customers, so the the demand was slow but steady. And the customers were, again, like insurance companies, banks, um libraries um, maybe universities um kind of institutional and um high capitalized um private companies that were building headquarters those were the uh, the the private customers by and large, and then city and state government built this way but um contrary to what you might think um uh Industrial buildings did not. So um, the Cornelius and Baker factory was a very rare example of a fireproof industrial building. Um, It was just too costly. So uh, industrial customers either went without or um, used other techniques for um, controlling fire, you know, more affordable techniques, but insurance companies were completely uninterested. (laughs) And I know this because I've written about it. (laughs) It was, you know, it's a sort of go-to thought, you know, like, oh, well, don't insurance companies want buildings not to burn? (laughs) Uh, In fact, they don't. They want buildings to build, to to pay premiums sufficient to cover the cost of buildings, (laughs) whatever that might be. So burn or not burn, just as long as, as they can charge a sufficient amount to, um, to cover losses. That's, that, that was really their strategy for a very long time, certainly all through the 19th century, except for you know, some specialized companies that, that insured um, industrial buildings, mutual, some mutual companies, but the, um, you know, the large private stock insurance companies, um, had, had no rules. If, if, if you seem riskier, they just charged you more. And that uh, turned out to be a, you know, for most owners, um, the way to go. Only, as I say, owners that really, you know, ha- had a library, had, you know, val- you know, things that they just didn't want to burn. Um, they, option at their option, Built fire.
0: So it was less and about
1: changed. Eventually, you know, by the 1880s, this this began to, to change, but you know, initially, as as the I beam is being developed, that was that was the situation.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's less about protecting the building than by protecting what what's inside it.
1: Well, right. It, except I should note, um, not the people that 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 was sort of off people's radar at the time, they thought if the building was fireproof, the people were okay. But um, there wasn't, which is not the case, but anyway, but there wasn't a lot of um, concern for a long time for safety to life. That was, that really, uh, you know, sort of evolved um, as a separate track, the uh, evolution of the fireproof building, which I cover in my book of the title "The Fireproof Building um, was going in a different track, and there was just a, a general feeling that if the building was safe, you know the contents were safe, including the people, although there, again there wasn't a lot of thought to the problem of how if every you know like the contents you know could still burn in a fireproof building and, and what you know what do the people do? how do they get out um, but um, you know a lot of the concern was general conflagration and protecting the building from the outside from, from fire, and then having no wood structurally inside. Um, and therefore, um, different floors could be what's called today compartmentalized. So if it was all wood, you know, it could burn through, but if, if you have a barrier you know, a brick and an iron, that that would stop the fire in a particular place. So you wouldn't have a, um, you know, a general burn through a building. So that, that was a thought at the time. But it is true that uh, beginning in the 1880s, a number of cities began to require certain kinds of buildings, certain tall buildings, um, you know, eventually theaters, certain kinds of buildings to be fireproof. But the, the general mass of buildings
0: um, it was at the option of the of the owner sort of a, a more general question. What is it like conducting research at the hagley library oh <laughs> it's a dream
1: <laughs> i uh it's like i don't know going to paradise you know it's 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 the the uh, the the collections are wonderful you know you can never see everything you want to see um there's both you know manuscript and um, in print collections, and I haven't used the um, visual collections much, but they're there too. Um, you know the the Soda House for, for doing manuscript research is is, is just great, and uh, you know the staff is is you know helpful, um, knowledgeable, and um, uh, I, if I come, I, I try to also, um, come when there's, um, a Saturday opening. So one Saturday a month, um, you know, back in the pre-COVID days, <laughs> the library is opened and, and I could even have, um, manuscript material brought to the, um, the reading room of the main library to, to use that day. Um. So I, if I'm doing a research trip, I, I stay on the grounds, and the grounds are, it's like the Peaceful Kingdom. There are all these little animals, little, um, <laughs> there's deer, and um, I forget what you call them there, the uh, sort of groundhogs, do you call them? Yeah, I guess groundhogs um, uh, on the property, and uh, it's, it's, it's just wonderful. and. You know, walking through the grounds is, is wonderful. So it's just really a, a wonderful place to do research. I feel very privileged to have been able to work there as, as many times as I have. Yes, and I've, I've used the collections for many, many projects. And even on this one, um, besides the Phoenix Steel Corporation manuscript, um, you know, one of the early... Um, Well, in, for Trenton Ironworks, before rolling um, a, um, a proper eye, you know, symmetrical eye section, they first rolled something in this shape, which is a, um, a legitimate section that's used in ships. It's called a deck bead, but they rolled it for Camden and Amboy railroad. So this was, you know, it's referred to people call it a rail beam, but in fact, it was a rail. Hampton and Amboy had an idea that if they made a very tall, um, very heavy rail, that it would last longer. Um, That didn't turn out, but it's, it's, um, so it's, it's seven inches tall. And for your information, this is, this is a section of a, Mm -hmm. an actual contemporary rail so this is more than seven inches but anyway this is what a you know a normal rail of the time would look like so this was a very a tall rail and and Trenton Ironworks um made the rolls to to roll this well so there's a question of what happened to these rails um At first, when when Trenton could not was having difficulty making a symmetrical eye, it began to shift this structural section instead of eyes, and in fact, it works as a beam. So um, that that was that what you know predated the rolling of eyes, and there is a you know question: Well, what were they just like taking, you know, the rails from the Camden and Amboy Railroad? You know, what was going on? So there are Camden and Amboy Railroad, um, I believe, you know, there's some material about that in the Hagley collections too. This was imprint material. Um, That was, you know, it's still, I don't think I got quite to the bottom of that story, but um, but for sure that was rolled for the railroad. It was put in place. Many, many rails were, um, that type were used and eventually they were removed, but there's some disagreement. Um, Abram Hewitt says they were in service for 50 years. You know, there's other evidence that they might've been taken up sooner. But anyway, that's the, so these were, these did exist. They were shipped to companies, I'm sorry, to um, construction projects prior to the section, to the I, Phoenix only, you know, was going for an, for an eye and only had an eye. <laughs> you know, it, it never, it, it eventually made deck beams too, proper deck beams. Again, those were used in ships for ship decks, um, but, um, but it didn't have this intervening period the way it transit did.
0: It's, it's fascinating uh, teasing these, these mysteries apart.
1: Yes, well, that's, you know, again, one of the wonderful things. If you're working on something, you know, a kind of mid-Atlantic subject, um, the Hagley Library, you know, between the imprints and manuscripts, there's just a ton. Yeah, I also used um, the, uh, you know, Reading Rail, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania Railroad, you know, records uh, just to confirm certain things for, um, for this project. So there's a lot of overlap and and it's great. it's, it's all there, <laughs> and you can get it fast, unlike in in some libraries where there are certain you know hours where they do polls at, at um, hagley it's right away so um, everything is right on site um, that's not the case in like the Library of Congress. sometimes you know things are not right there so um So it's really convenient, it's
0: really great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Sarah. Welcome. And uh, for the audience, if you'd like more information about Hagley History Hangouts or the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society and our research grant and fellowship programs, visit us online at hagley.org, that's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And uh, thank you once again, Sarah. Okay, bye.